Let's pray as we turn our attention now to God's word together. Lord Jesus, we we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done in rescuing us and the hope that we have, the sure hope of heaven that we have. God, we come before you now and we uh, just ask and pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work as we look at your word. Lord, we ask and pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear from you today, knowing that no good will come apart from your work. Lord Jesus, we, we ask that and we pray that you would build up uh, our faith, that you would encourage us, and at the same time that you would honor your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. We ask it in your name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to share a story uh, from this book, Live Not By Lies, by Rod Dreher. Uh, while I don't agree with everything that uh, Dreher believes theologically, uh, I would recommend that you grab hold of this uh, book and read through it. I think you will find it um, encouraging and challenging for your faith uh, and, and maybe help you um, gain a little bit of better understanding of the times in which we live. Um, but I want to share uh, the story, part of the story, of Sylvester Kirchmary. That's how you pronounce that. Uh, he was a doctor, he was a Christian, and he was a prisoner uh, in totalitarian Czechoslovakia. Uh, he lived from 1924 to 2013. And he said that years of Bible study and worship and scripture memory uh, is what prepared him for uh, a 14, 13 and a half, 14 year imprisonment uh, that he went through, which began in 1951. Actually, he says in his uh, he, he says that it was the Gospel of John that got him through. He actually had memorized the entire book of John uh, before he went to prison. It was an instrumental for him uh, in, in going through this. And for the first three years, he was uh, being uh, tortured, and then eventually he um, had a trial. And in 1954, at his trial, this was a part of his uh, testimony. He, he said... Um, God gave me everything that I have, and now that I face persecution because of him and am called on to profess my faith in him, should I now pretend I don't believe? Should I hide my faith? Should I deny him? Uh, incidentally, I, I should mention that he was arrested and put in prison for sharing his faith and for refusing to deny his faith. That's what got him into this mess in the first place. Uh, and Rod Dreher writes the following in his book. Quote, the basis of his resistance was the firm conviction that, and now he quotes Kirchmary, he says, Kirchmary says, there could not be anything more beautiful, this is his conviction, there could not be anything more beautiful than to lay down my life for God. End quote, Dreher again. When that thought came to Kirchmary in the police car as, as he was being arrested, he burst out laughing, <laughs> which uh, was not taken too well by his captors. Um, but refusing self-pity and teaching himself to receive whatever the interrogators did to him as an aid to his own salvation uh, saved Kirchmary's spiritual life. Behind bars and subject to all manner of torture and humiliation, Kirchmary kept himself sane by hope, um, and hopeful through cultivating and practicing his faith in a disciplined way and by evangelizing others. In his memoir, this called This Saved Us, Kirchmary 
uh, recalls that after repeated beatings, torture, and interrogations, he realized that the only way he was going to make it through this was to rely entirely on his faith and not on his reason to see him through. He continued to memorize and meditate on Scripture while he was in prison uh, using a, a Bible that had been smuggled in. Uh, he and other prisoners would sing hymns together. They would recite Scripture back and forth together. They would pray together. They would pray uh, for themselves. They would pray, he says specifically, for a spirit of humility and willingness to endure all for the sake of Christ. Kirchmary would also pray for his captors. Uh, he was released from prison in 1964, and he spent the next 20 years working as a doctor, as a physician, but he also spent the rest of his life uh, sharing the gospel um, with students, drug addicts, alcoholics, the homeless, and prisoners. That's how he spent the rest of his days when he was released. I share all this uh, because he's a Christian who suffered for the sake of Christ, and remained faithful to the end. He is a, an example. He exemplifies what we're going to see in our text today, what it, what it looks like to live with steadfast hope under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Follow along as I read our, our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than, uh, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The message for us today is this, live with steadfast hope under the lordship of Christ. Now, Peter is continuing to teach us how do we as Christians live in a hostile world, and today, here, he's, he's teaching us how to respond to persecution for our faith in such a way that it becomes a witness to the gospel. It opens up an opportunity to witness to Christ. So how do we respond when we face opposition for the sake of Christ? We see four things. First, know that you are blessed, even if you suffer for righteousness. We see this right here in verses 13 and 14. Look there again with me. Peter writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And just as a reminder, Peter just finished quoting Psalm 34. So in verses 10 through 12, he quotes Psalm 34, which is talking about, the gist of it is, that God blesses the righteous. His eye is on those who are righteous. And now in verse 13, he, he states this general truth. He says, those who are zealous for what is good, generally speaking, won't be harmed. It's like Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, that is not a guarantee without exception, but a principle that is generally true. But it's not always true. Sometimes we will suffer for righteousness' sake. 
Now, this isn't about suffering because you're a rude, obstinate, foolish, ignorant Christian. <laughs> this is about suffering for righteousness' sake. But that does happen, Peter says. And he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Or, we could translate it, you are blessed. Peter is referring to Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, the last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A Christian is persecuted because he's righteous, which is just another way of saying that he's like Jesus. And all who are like him, like Jesus, will be persecuted. Jesus said this. He said, if you're of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 19, and 20. If we are being persecuted for the sake of Christ, then it must mean that our lives have become like his If you are persecuted for your faith, then the world is telling you that you don't belong to it. You belong to another world, another kingdom. We rejoice when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake because it's a proof of who we are and where we're going. It means that we're like the prophets, Jesus says, true servants of God. It means like we're like Jesus, our master. It means that we don't belong to this world. But as Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Beatitudes describe what a Christian, what a disciple of Christ is supposed to be like. Poor in spirit, meek, merciful, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and so on. What that means is that these are marks of a Christ follower, and that means that being hated, slandered, persecuted is just a mock, as much a mark of the normal Christian as being pure in heart or being a, a peacemaker. If you are persecuted for Christ, this is one proof that you are in fact a child of God and a citizen of heaven. That's the comfort of this beatitude when we suffer for our faith. I want to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here at some length because I think it's worth it. He's talking about this text in Matthew and being persecuted for righteousness, and he says, if people are unkind and cruel and spiteful, and if you're being persecuted, well, then we must say to ourselves, ah, unhappy people, they're doing this because they do not know him, and they do not understand me. They're incidentally proving to me that I belong to him, and that I'm going to be with him, and share in that joy with him. Therefore, far from resenting it and wanting to hit back or being depressed by it, it makes me realize all the more what is awaiting me. I have a joy unspeakable and full of glory awaiting me. All of this is but temporary and passing. It can't affect that. I therefore must thank God for it because, as Paul puts it, 
it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is why Kirch Mary said that he had been given a gift in suffering for Jesus. This is why Peter can say, even if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Because it confirms to us the blessing that's in store for us, the hope of heaven, where we're going to worship God in his presence, where there is fullness of joy, where you are going to have your perfect, glorified body, which is going to be free from all sickness, disease, and death, where there will be no sorrow, no sadness, no tears. There will be no wars, no hurt, no loss. There will be nothing there that will make you discouraged or fearful or anxious, even for a second. You will have joy and glory untainted forever and ever. That is what's in store for you and far more. Because our words fall so utterly short of trying to describe it. And that inheritance for you is certain. Which we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1. You see, the Christian's life is to be controlled by thoughts of heaven and the world to come. It should impact everything that we do. Most people want to avoid thinking about death and eternity. But the Christian thinks often about these things, and it drives everything that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what enables us to be zealous for good works, to invest our lives, to spend our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, no matter what the cost. because we're banking everything on Jesus. This is why the apostles could be beaten and leave rejoicing. I want you to notice the connection between their faith and hope leading to joy and relentless obedience. And when they, that's the religious leaders, called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And then they, that's the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I read that. And I think, how strange that sounds. How differently we feel today. It's totally foreign to our mindset, our walk with the Lord. Man, when, 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 when people see my faith, when people see our faith, I want them to look at me, I want them to look at us, and I want them to say, that person is sold out for Jesus Christ. It's clear to me that that person is banking everything on Jesus Christ. How do we get to that place? How do we get there? I want to be there. Amen? 
Well, step one, you have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to actually be a, a Christ follower, a Christian. And you do that by repenting, turning away from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ to save you. It's our sin that separates us from God, that, that earns God's wrath, his punishment, his judgment for breaking his laws. We have to recognize and acknowledge that sin before God, confess it, turn away from that sin, and put our trust in Jesus Christ. Because as a holy God, he's going to judge sin, but God isn't merely just, praise the Lord. He's also loving. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to earth to take our place, to die in our place for our sins so that we wouldn't have to die. He took the punishment for us. So we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And when we do, we receive forgiveness and eternal life. That inheritance that we mentioned a moment ago, that becomes yours. Yours. That's where it starts. But what about for us as a Christian? How do we get to that place as Christians? What do we do? Well, you have to know that you are blessed even if you suffer for righteousness. Why? Because you possess the kingdom and great is your reward in heaven. So what's the application for us as Christians? I think it's, it's for us to think consistently and regularly and always be fixing our thoughts, our minds on things above and not on things of earth. It's to, it's to devote our minds and thoughts to heaven and what's to come, to think about our great hope, realizing more and more and more what awaits us, so that our lives would be controlled by thoughts of heaven, so that we live with such hope in Jesus Christ that we can face persecution for his sake with joy. Brothers and sisters, you have an inheritance that cannot be taken from you. No one can ultimately harm you because God promises to preserve his people. So you do not need to be afraid of what people will do to persecute you for Jesus. And that leads to the second thing that we have to do as Christians. Fear and honor Christ the Lord, not man. We live under the lordship of, of Christ. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. To regard, to sanctify, to set apart, depending on your translation, it means to reverence Christ the Lord. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer when he, when he teaches his disciples to pray, hallowed be your name. It's the same word. To hallow God's name means we treat him as holy and we reverence him above all others. So Jesus is teaching us to pray, hallowed be your name, right? We're not praying, God, you are holy. It's not a statement, it's a request in the Lord's Prayer. We're asking for something. We're not asking God be holy because he already is holy. So we're not asking him to be holy what we're asking for is that God would be treated as holy, that he would be honored by us and by others in the world as holy. We're praying that God would be revered and honored and obeyed and worshipped. Peter is saying that very thing about Jesus. 
you must revere and honor and obey and worship Christ as the Lord, the Lord, as He deserves. It starts in our hearts. We, we, we put Christ the Lord on the throne of our hearts as who He is, Lord. And from that place, we live obediently to Him. We live to honor Him, to glorify Him, to worship Him. But it starts by, by putting Him in the place of Lord in your heart. That's what Peter is teaching us here. Well, Peter is quoting here uh, in verses 13 or 14 and 15. He's quoting from Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. You can see it when you read the two texts side by side. And I think that understanding what was going on historically is helpful for understanding what was going on. So at this point in Israel's history, uh, the kingdom has been divided, right? So now there's a southern kingdom of Judah and a northern kingdom of Israel. And at this point, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel... Uh, joins forces with Syria. We read about this a moment ago from Isaiah. And they come and attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Ahaz of Judah, he's totally freaking out. He, he is absolutely terrified. The illustration that God uses in the Bible is that they are shaking like leaves on a tree when the wind blows. You've seen when the wind blows how the leaves tremble, they shake. That's Ahaz and the people. They're freaking out. They're trembling with fear. And God comes through Isaiah, and, and he says, don't be afraid of them. He promises that the, the, the northern kingdom and Syria, they're going to be defeated. They're like smoking firebrands. That's like a, a stick that you pull out of the fire, and the end was, was burning, and then it goes out, and it just has that little trail of smoke. That's all they are. There's no fire there. You don't have anything to be afraid of. It's just smoke, right? So God is telling him, don't be afraid. I'm going to preserve you. Northern kingdom and Syria, they're going to be defeated. And then Ahaz and the people, they have a choice. Are we going to trust and fear God and his promise? Like, are we going to trust him or not? Sadly, Ahaz doesn't trust him. He doesn't trust God. So what he does is, is he makes an alliance with Assyria, their enemy, to come and deliver them from from, from Israel and Syria. So he doesn't trust in the Lord. And instead of trusting God, then he, he trusts man. Instead of fearing God, he fears man. Well, then God comes and he tells Isaiah and his followers, uh, the faithful, he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be in, or be in dread, but the Lord of hosts him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Don't do what Ahaz and the people are doing right now, freaking out and trusting man and not and fearing man. I want you to trust God, fear God. But notice what Peter does. He trades Lord of hosts for Christ the Lord, pointing us to the deity of Christ. He deserves the same honor, reverence, fear that the Lord does. So just like Ahaz and the people are feeling threatened, they're tempted to be afraid of their enemies and what they're going to do to them. So the Christians in Peter's day, they're feeling threatened and tempted to fear their persecutors and what they're going to do to them. And in both cases, God tells his people not to fear man or the suffering that they might inflict, but to fear the Lord, trusting that he will preserve his people. Man, we are so tempted to look horizontally for our security for our hope. We're tempted to look to human means for those things. And God says, no, I want you to fear 
me. I want you to trust me. Reverence for Christ is what drives out the fear of man. Now, if we fear man rather than fearing God, we're going to make decisions like Ahaz. We're not going to be zealous for what God says is good. Do you know what we'll be zealous for? We'll be zealous for what the people we fear say is good. We'll be zealous to do what will help us to fit in with the people that we are trying to please, those that we fear. Peter quotes Isaiah so that we're going to learn that it's better to fear God and displease man than it is to fear man and displease God. It's more dreadful to displease God than it is to displease man. And being anchored in that truth, in the reverence for the Lord, being anchored in that is what gives us courage to follow Christ no matter the cost. So our, our life as a Christian is to be controlled and ruled by Jesus Christ. Our aim is to live for his sake and not for our own. We honor Jesus for who he is. The one who demands to be and deserves to be king, the Lord of our lives. So we give, as disciples, we give Christ his, his proper place. He's the Lord. We're his servants. We fear and honor Christ the Lord, not man. We don't fear those who would persecute us for our faith. We take the long-range view, as Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. When we get to that place, that's what leads us to fearless, hopeful faith. That's what leads us to fearless and hopeful faith. When we reverence Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, and that kind of faith leads people to ask questions. That brings us to point three. Be ready to give a reason for your hope. We see that in verse 15. Look there with me. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So biblical hope centers on this awesome future that awaits us in heaven. And its source is reverence for Christ the Lord and that leads us to this courageous faith. So when unbelievers see us enduring mistreatment for the sake of Christ with hope and joy, some of those people are going to ask us, why? Why do, you, why do you live this way? Why do you live like you do? They're going to wonder why we patiently endure, and instead of reviling in return, we bless. They're going to see that hope, and they're going to say, where is that coming from? I don't understand this. They're going to see that we're not afraid of man, but we have this steadfast faith. And Peter expects, it's amazing to me, that Peter expects that our reverence for Jesus Christ is going to lead us as Christians to live with such hope, to live in a way that is so noticeably different, especially in how we respond to hardship or suffering. It's going to lead us to live so differently that unbelievers are going to ask us why we have such hope. And we've got to be ready to tell them. Living with hope then opens the door to share our faith with our family, our friends, our neighbors, even strangers. We have to be ready to give anyone an apologia, a reasoned answer for why we live with such hope in the hostile world. That's where we get our, we, we get our word apologetics from, giving a defense of the faith. I think when we read this text, we often read it in a way that 
we, we think that it means that we have to be ready to answer any question, any possible objection that, that someone is going to raise about our faith. I think that's how we read it. We, we read it and we think, okay, that, this means that I need to go now and study really hard and learn every answer to every possible objection and every possible question that I'm ever going to be asked about Jesus or the faith, and then I'll be ready to share with people. I think that's how we read it, but that's not what Peter is saying at all. Uh, it's good to be able to answer common objections to our faith, but it's absolutely overwhelming if we think that we have to be able to answer everything before we can talk to people. But that's not what Peter's point is. That's not what he's saying here. Look at this. This is about explaining the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You always have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Every single Christian can do this. Young believers, new believers can do this. This should be a tremendous encouragement to you right now. You don't need to go get an apologetics degree from Biola before you can share with people the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Amen, somebody. Now, to have somebody ask you about your hope, that implies a couple things. Number one, you have hope. And number two, your hope is evident. They can see it. That that unbelievers know you well enough that they can see your hope. How do you see hope? What does a visible hope look like in the Christian life? In our words, in our attitudes, in how we talk about the events of the day and what's going on in our country and what's going on in the world. Is our talk saturated with hope? How have you done the last 18 months with displaying hope in your attitudes and your words and your actions and your social media posts? and your conversations with your neighbors, and so on. Man, all of this chaos for the last 18 months has been one huge opportunity for us as Christians to display our hope to a world that doesn't have it. Huge opportunity. And if I'm being honest with myself, I'm going to say for me, it's been a missed opportunity, oftentimes. Like every season of trial, we have an opportunity to display hope to a world that has no lasting hope, to show the world, to point people to Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in Him. Maybe the reason why we're so afraid to share our faith with people is because we don't feel very hopeful. Maybe the reason why we... We feel burdened when we think about sharing Christ with other people is because we're not brimming with hope. We're not full of hope. We see it as defending doctrine rather than delighting to share our hope with other people. How can we make a case for someone else to put their hope in Christ if we're not living from a place of hope in Christ? 
And if that's true, then maybe the best way to prepare to share your faith is not studying up so you can answer objections at all. Not that that's bad. But maybe the best way to prepare to share your faith is to savor Jesus Christ in the scriptures daily so that it fills you with awe and hope in him. And that's the place from which you share Christ with people around you. Could you explain right now the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Would it be cold and dusty in the effort? Wooden instead of joyful and a delight? Are we eager to share? Because we're personally and daily resting in our hope in Jesus Christ. Could you give a compelling answer to the questions? Why do you live like you do? Why do you believe like you do? Why are you willing to suffer like you do for Jesus? Can you share the gospel with people? You can. You can. It's not enough just to give an answer. How we give the answer is important too. And Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When we encounter the hostile world around us, it is so easy to respond harshly. We're tempted to attack our opponents, to lash out instead of loving our enemies. We're tempted to self-pity instead of praying for our enemies. We're tempted to revile instead of blessing. We're tempted to withdraw from people instead of witnessing to them. So when we respond, we're called to do it with gentleness, meekness, humility. That's what this word means here. It's shown in humility by not attacking our opponents, but being patient and gracious with them. And the word respect here, it's, it's actually fear or reverence. So this isn't about how we treat other people, actually. It's about our reverence for the Lord. It's about our reverence for God. It's referring to God. Reverence for God is what enables us to respond rightly to unbelievers. So when we're humble and we fear God, we're able to treat our opponents with dignity. When we are resting secure in the lordship of Jesus Christ and we fear God above fearing man, then we no longer have to defend ourselves. We no longer have to do that because we've already been justified in Jesus Christ. We don't have to please man because we already are accepted by God, right? So it's this humility and reverence for God that enables us to treat people with dignity, to give a reason for our hope in a way that is gentle. So our witness is helped then by our action, and that leads us to our final point. Be a godly disciple, zealous for doing good. See this in verses 16 and 17. Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so when we're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I want to point out here that when we suffer for righteousness, we have to know that it's under God's control. It's under God's control. God does not allow or appoint anything, anything in our lives except for the very best reasons. One reason that we see in this 
particular text is that God uses our steadfast hope and faith in the midst of suffering as a powerful witness to the world. When we endure unjust suffering with hope, it's a testimony of the reality of the gospel and God can use it to bring unbelievers to salvation. That is why Christ suffered. So we're going to see in verse 18 next week that he might bring us to God. In other words, this is Christ-like suffering that opens and empowers gospel witness, whereas suffering for evil hinders gospel witness. I think every one of us knows this to be true. Probably every one of us uh, could name a uh, high-profile evangelical leader who has fallen uh, morally and, and then tainted their, their witness um, and their ministry. But on a more personal level, I knew a person in high school who, who wasn't a believer, and they went to church on Sunday, and the same uh, people, the same kids that he saw singing their hearts out on Sunday were the same kids that he saw partying and drinking the rest of the weekend. And it totally turned him away uh, from, from the Lord, from the faith. So it's not just true on a large scale, it's true on a small scale as well. The way that you and I live our lives impacts our witness. Our words have little weight without a credible life to match them. It doesn't do any good to talk about Jesus if we don't walk with Jesus. It just invites people to reject the truth and and ridicule Jesus. Peter's concern is that Christians live such a godly life that there is no legitimate ground for criticism from unbelievers. So so we're to be zealous for what is good. We're to fear and honor Christ the Lord, living for Him, maintaining a good conscience. And even if we're reviled for our good behavior in Christ, Peter's saying then someday either they're going to see the truth of the gospel and be saved or they're going to be shamed either in this life or on the day of judgment when God calls all people to account. And even though we might suffer as Christ's disciples for doing good, we are going to be vindicated and rewarded in eternity. I think this is important because if you live, if you live with steadfast hope under the lordship of Christ, if he's the one who's on the throne, if you're honoring and revering him, you're reverencing Christ the Lord as holy, then your obedience is not going to waver with the situation or the people that are around you. It's one thing to obey Christ at church or at home, but what about at work and what about at school and what about when no one's around? And, and what about when you're pressured to compromise and sacrifice your convictions? And what about even when you're persecuted or you suffer for righteousness' sake? we fear and honor Christ the Lord as holy, striving to please Him, then we are far less likely to cave under the pressure. We're going to honor Christ. That's our heart. That's our desire. No matter how much we fail to do that, we keep coming back to that. Amen? So how do we respond when we're persecuted for our faith? We live with steadfast hope under the Lordship of Christ. We fear God, not man. That's what leads us to fearless hopeful, steadfast, courageous faith. So, believer, 
you are blessed. You are blessed. I want you to fix your eyes on heaven and the world to come. Let that be the focus. Let that be the thing that drives your actions. And I'll leave you with Psalm 33, verse 18, as an encouragement to us. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Let's, let's pray that right now. God, we thank you and praise you that your eye is on those who fear you and on those who hope in your steadfast love. And we pray that you would do that in our own hearts, our own lives. Lord, help us to reverence Christ the Lord. Help us to live with hope under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We ask it and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.